welcome to City Speak with Max Masudafarkas. Thucydides, the great historian of the Peloponnesian War, famously wrote that war is a matter not so much of arms as of money. Replace the word money with architecture, and you more or less have the basic philosophy of my final guest today. Marwa al-Sabuni is an architect born, raised, and currently living in Syria, a country whose rich history and fraught contemporary state of affairs has animated her outlook on the role of architecture in society. Opting to remain in Syria despite the outbreak of the civil war, Al-Sabuni has written extensively on what architecture can tell us about the society in which it is situated and how it can presage a population's tendency either for peace or for conflict. Stay tuned. Marwa Al-Sabuni, welcome to City Speak. Thank you for having me. So Marwa, when faced with a person who has had as remarkable a life as you, frankly, it's daunting to know where one should start. So I think a good place as any is to start all the way at the beginning. So Marwa, tell us about your childhood and the city in which you grew up. Well, before I do that, may I just give the listeners some heads up. If I sounded a bit robotic or, you know, the sound quality was not okay, it's because I'm speaking from home, Syria, and I'm joining you via Zoom. And Zoom as a platform, I mean, it doesn't function here in Syria. Uh, so we're using a VPN. So that's why the line is just so reliable. So... No problem at all. I think you probably have the title for guest on the podcast who has zoomed in from the furthest locale, which is an enviable title. <laughs> well, believe it or not, Max, I find it sometimes difficult to go back as far as my childhood because I'm not that old. I'm 41. But because of everything that happened and everything that I've been through, I guess, increase those gaps in your memory living through the war and now it's 11 years believe it or not since the first day of the conflict here and sometimes I just find it difficult to remember things so what I would say is just I had a certain degree normal childhood I say certain degree because I come from middle class family my father was a doctor and my mom was at home. She didn't work, but she had a biology degree. But also my parents didn't have, you know, this happy marriage thing. And they got a divorce in the end. So, but my childhood was very straightforward in terms of going to school and being raised here in Homs, which is a very, can, you can say a very dull city because it's a family city. Nothing much happens. It's just, it, it was safe, but also very domestic. So if you have a big family, you will have a full life. But if you, if you have a small family like I did and you didn't, you know, have a very large web around you people, you just, you know, you just have your routine day, just, you know, going to school, coming back from school, playing in the street or doing some sports on your own capacity and that's it. It occurs to me there's a certain, I'm sure you've considered this an irony, so to speak, to the fact that the name of your home city is Homes. And it's something that the notion of home is something that's become so important to your work that we'll get into today. 
So this idea of coming from a place of having a childhood that's relatively normal and yet then living a life that then changed so dramatically, of course, for those who are already acquainted with your remarkable life story, undoubtedly the moment that stands out is the moment you decided to remain in Syria, even as the civil war broke out in 2011. So what led you to make such an extraordinary decision? Well, I understand the curiosity that why it's very mysterious to make such a decision. But actually it was pretty normal for us as a family, my husband and two children who were very small at the time. They were three and six in 2011 when the war broke. And I guess it's in our human nature that we are attached to our places. It's it's something that it's, it's our default state to be attached to where you are, no matter how bad things are. And before the war broke, I didn't know that I was attached to my home city. I was, as many Syrians at the time, Syrians who are who were struggling to find their place in the country and in the economy and in what we call a block horizon, which meant that nothing much was happening and we couldn't find ourselves. You know, you couldn't imagine yourself, you wouldn't have like a five-year plan ahead of you. You wouldn't know there are no certainties in terms of living before the war in Homs or in Syria. If you don't come from a very wealthy family, if you don't have very good support around you, you don't have any certainty in terms of work and home and, and establishing life. Ironically, when the war happened, we just felt naturally that this is our place. We couldn't imagine ourselves in anywhere else especially in the beginning. So the war, you know, it doesn't have a linear system to it. It's just, you know, things could happen. One day could go very bad one day and change in the other day. And there are phases of difficulties and phases of violence and phases of life-threatening events that change from one time to the other. So at the height of the conflict, it was almost impossible to leave place. So people who fled and many people fled around us who fled, they fled with an equally risky circumstances. So they left leaving everything behind, they left their clothes, they left their home and left everything and went into this very dangerous journey to flee under shelling and snipers and persecution sometimes. So at the beginning, it was the safest with it or not, stay put. Whereas, you know, everywhere around us was completely madness. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, we had bullets straying into our flat. We had mortars, bombs landing in the middle of the street in front of the door. And we lived again among snipers who were shooting people from side to side. And people were just, you know, losing their lives, just getting groceries from down the block. So it was very difficult, but also it was equally difficult to make the decision to go out. But as time moved on, we found this new concept of attachment. You know, you've been through the worst, if you could imagine that. I mean, we we thought it was the worst, but then it turned out there, there are worse cases. But the longer we stayed, the longer we felt our attachment to the place. And the more we felt sometimes the responsibility to stay, do some good, to persevere. I mean, if I want to summarize this, I think it's love. I mean, just, you know, you love your place, you love your hometown and it's broke. 
but you hope that you will be part of its improvement and you hope that the sacrifice you're making is worthwhile. I guess it's also related to faith because in our religion, in our faith, we believe in destiny, basically, and that our lives and the day we will die, just, you know, it's meant to be. And what matters is what you choose to do in the meantime. Well, among the, frankly, unimaginable effects psychologically and otherwise that your decision to remain in Syria has had, on you, many of which you've just touched on, that decision to remain physically present in Syria has also had the effect of contributing to what I see as your singular and truly inimitable voice in the world of architecture. And I mean voice not only in your work as an architect, but also in your philosophy as an architect and indeed as a writer. So let's turn now to your writing, and I'd like to start by reading one line from your 2016 book, The Battle for Home, an Architect in Syria. In the introduction, you write, quote, In the built environment, we can find not only indicators of events that have already occurred, but also portents of what could or might still occur. Architecture in my country has played a vital role in creating, directing, in heightening conflicts between warring factions by facilitating poor choices and narrowing viable alternatives. This has become a recurring theme in your work. What do you mean by this? Well, the war was a life-changing event in that sense because it allowed me to look at my city and also my vocation, architecture, in a whole different light. So at the time I was studying for my PhD and I was uh, I was uh, questioning actually it was about stereotyping Islamic architecture and it was about architectural design and how to perceive architecture and actually just looking out from my window I just kept wondering at the beginning it was a civil war as as the many people know it was the beginning the Syrian war was a civil war but it turned out into a proxy war and international war but I was wondering at the time, how come, you know, certain groups of people are coming from certain place, are inclined to inflict degrees of violence towards people who should be their fellow citizens, who should be neighbors. And it was happening in a dynamic that I was just watching responses as well from people who just were living, for example, in the old part of the city. And the old part of the city was just a compact part where people just live from different backgrounds, from different religions. And the way they described and lamented actually the destruction of that part of the city was totally different from the narrative you would get from people just living, let's say, in outside neighborhoods or just development project neighborhoods. And I found the way they described their neighbors and, and the love to their houses and to their places, just it was so eye-opening for me to see how buildings actually and the way those buildings looked has affected the relationships and the way people viewed their place and the people around them and how a whole lifestyle resulted around this place. 
So basically, we'd have people living side by side. As I said, Muslims and Christians, people from the countryside originally and, and people from the city, people who lived door to door there. And they had this mentality of support that you would only see in true neighborliness. The way that people describe those buildings, you know, in affectionate way, how they describe the stones, how they described the height of the walls and the shape, all of this made me realize the connection between how our buildings looked and how it felt. And it's actually, like you were saying in your question, it happens on different layers. So it happens on the urban scale, for example, where you see connected neighborhoods functioning in a way that is different from the way that, you know, for example, comparing that to the different projects of the neighborhood where they were just ghettoized areas zoned out and segregated both urbanly and socially and economically. And you can downsize this, which I do in, in both of my in Battle for Home then in, in Building for Hope. You could zoom into the very details of how buildings are shaped and what kind of material those buildings were made of and how nature, for example, not integrated, but also built into the architecture of, of those places. And finally, what economy those buildings and the shape of those buildings enable because the way those buildings are built enables a network a certain economic activity that is lost in for example mass-produced or modernized places so relatedly in arguing that the built environment is as much a cause as a reflection of events in society as you've said you seem to suggest that the architects, designers, and urban planners who design places where conflict breaks out all bear, to some degree, some responsibility for facilitating that conflict. So in the case of Syria, on whom do you place that responsibility? Well, definitely, as far as I'm concerned, they bear the whole responsibility because the decisions they made and they continue to make, by the way, it's not only in Syria, it happened globally. How the city authority and how urban planners and architects as well are involved in shaping urban settlement and to also to a very large degree, even rural settlement, is very vital because let's take Syria here as an example that because it definitely is an example to the world. In Homs, the governor who we had right before the event. He was responsible for initiating a project, a development project on a city scale. He wanted to change the whole shape of the city. So Homs's dream project was about remodeling Homs as a city after the Gulf model because the governor was fascinated with Dubai and he wanted to impose Dubai on Homs. But for those who don't know, Syrian cities are of so many layers of civilization. So we have so many older architectures dating back to Hellenistic times and Roman times, the Aramic and the ancient Eastern civilizations, the uh, remnants do not actually show yet. We don't know how deep they are, but you still have bills which have Roman stones or part of walls that are integrated within the 
Islamic styles over it, like from the Ayyubid, from the Mamluk, from the Umayyad, of course, and lastly, uh, the Ottoman uh, Islamic architecture. And it's something that is related also to how Islamic architecture was built. So after that, we have colonial architecture that dates to the French colonization. And afterward, we only have bare blocks that come back to the socialist era. And then some attempts, very bad attempts of modern architecture. So what this governor wanted is just to erase whatever is left from the old city, which has has the, some of the colonial architecture, the French architecture, and also the old architecture that is built with black basalt, which is the local material here. And he wanted just to create high skyscrapers and a very ugly model, by the way, even in modern architectural, ugly. But the mess created because he changed the building code in order to facilitate this dream, so-called dream. And he just changed the building code and allowed investment. And people just went crazy with this. People who had money just went on board with him and they wanted just to crazy buying of lot buildings. Also people who, owned, for example, a courtyard house or um, two stories of, of an old building just torn that up and just erected in place blocks that were just five stories or six stories. And when the whole city went crazy. But this created is also a huge imbalance with the property prices, which is, you know, evacuated tenants were just thrown out. The whole mess of people losing homes went over the roof and nobody was covering this. Nobody was interested in looking into this. But people actually went demonstrating and objecting on what's happening to homes. And the whole issue here is just when people just, you know, observe this from purely economic perspective, they do not pay attention on what's at stake here, which is not only people losing home, but also losing interest in home. When you see your home city being literally destroyed, and you see everything that you loved and everything that was, you know, part of your memory and everything that attached you to this space being vandalized in this crazy way. You just lose interest in your home and home doesn't matter anymore, which is exactly what happened to home. In your more recent book from 2021, Building for Hope Towards an Architecture of Belonging, you address how previously you focused on the question of why we need home, whereas now you're addressing the how. That is, in your words, quote, how is home built and what does it mean to us emotionally? You mean this, of course, as much metaphorically as literally, asking how a place may be rebuilt in the aftermath of conflict So accordingly, let me now pose the question back to you. How is home built? Well, you know, Max, it's a huge question that took me almost two books and still still needs to more (laughs) addressing. But if I want to summarize, home revolves around safety and prosperity, of course, but also uh, around familiarity, which we are introduced to since our early days in life, since our childhood. And what we become familiar with 
pretty much is imprinted in our consciousness. And it dictates to a certain degree how we relate to the world. So the more this is just and beautiful and tolerant and so on, we can add so many adjectives, the more this is imprinted in our consciousness. And I guess also by reading the, the Syrian history and reading this, the, the history of my own city, many things made sense in that relationship because the way those cities were built and how they would just introduce so many elements in our life that hold it a moral value that, you know, set an example that we actually embraced in our relationship. So the openness, the tolerance, the beauty of those buildings and of those architectures and how people just live in and around those buildings the same way. It just gives you a sense of you should build again. And I don't want to sound like a traditionalist here because I'm not actually. I'm just drawing the lessons, the core values of those means of buildings and uh, trying to just read those values and to emphasize those values in order they do not get lost forever. So in closing, as I referenced earlier, you've advanced a theory that architecture is at once a record of the past and a vision of the future, which you can discern from the macro scale right down to the dimensions of a single building. So as you look upon the architecture of your home city and country, what vision of the future do you see encoded in its buildings? This is a difficult question, but a very important one as well, because what we have lost here in Syria is immeasurable, I think. What I worry about is how we are moving forward, because, you know, to a certain degree, the frozen state we are now in, to a certain degree, I count it as blessing, because what I hear and everyone here hears from officials and, and from also architects and urbaners, and sometimes from the public themselves, is this model that I was describing for Home's Dream, you know? People see the Gulf, the UAE and Saudi living in so-called prosperity is very apparent. And, and I think this is this civilized, quote-unquote, uh, model that we should follow. Whereas we have a great example here, right under our noses, which we continue to destroy and we continue to overlook. It takes only just, you know, listening to the people, just listening to the normal people and living among those buildings and, and looking at those values that I was describing to try to encapsulate those and come up with a model that is relatable. I mean, Homs is a city just, you know, 2,300 years old. Damascus is the oldest continuous inhabited capital in the world. So, so many cities here in Syria have so many lessons to learn and which, which I tried to draw in my recent book, Building for Hope, Lessons that are related to building policies, but also lessons in architecture and beauty and aesthetics. And we only have to uncover those layers, these layers of wrongdoings and vandalism, and look at those cores and try to come up with a model that is related to this, you know, updated than something that is related to the time, but also that doesn't ignore the values that are here. Marwa Al-Sabuni, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
This has been City Speak with Max Masudafarkas, produced in partnership with Urbanized Media with audio production and music by Greg Gordon-Smith. 